Go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 3, and we are going to start with verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he poured out, and he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So he held it out, so she held it out and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she said to her, All the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. May God bless the reading of his word. It's hard to believe that we're already only one chapter away from being done Ruth. It feels like, you know, we've just started. But here we are, um, coming to the conclusion of chapter 3. And it's been interesting so far, hasn't it? Um, With Ruth going to the threshing floor, and we're kind of wondering, all right, what's going to happen here? But again, we've we've seen that in the end, um, worthiness does pull through. So let's go ahead and see what happens to conclude the chapter um, with Ruth and Naomi. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. We now learn what occurs after the discussion between Ruth and Boaz. She does as Boaz says and lays back down. Obviously, the day had enough stress with it. When you couple that with the previous conversation occurring in the middle of the night, we see the reason he recommends or he commands her um, to get some sleep. Though it is possible that she didn't really sleep too well with everything in such suspense. Regardless of this, she does lie down until morning. Whether it is her personal nature or some other reason, she gets up early in the morning. We are told that it is before one could recognize another. So this would probably be the pre-dawn hours when it's most dark before the sun came up. Boaz, recognizing this as an opportunity, says, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Uh, This is an odd way of saying what he is really saying. (laughs) He is clearly wanting Ruth to head back home during this early morning period. It would keep people from questioning what's going on and keep them from assuming that she had gone to the threshing floor for immoral reasons. Though... We could, they, though they could simply say that didn't nothing happened, that is Ruth and Boaz, apparently such sensual encounters occurred during the time so often that it would cause people to doubt their integrity and their worth as individuals. So it's with that we go on to verse 15. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. At this point in the story, Boaz calls her to hold out her garment. Um, We should not assume that this was the same garment Naomi had told her to wear earlier. Instead, this would likely be a headdressing of some kind or even an extra garment she had worn to the threshing floor. Boaz then gave her six measures of barley and put it into the garment. We're not sure what the measure was. If it was an ephah, which is what she had gathered in the previous chapter, then this could be anywhere between 100 and 300 pounds, um, depending on the size ephah is considered. Most scholars tend to think that that would be a little too much for Ruth to carry. (laughs) I know, David's like, I don't know, I could do it. Um, (laughs) 
So others have proposed that it is an omer, which would be one-tenth the size of an ephah. Um, this would mean that he had given around 18 to 30 pounds, much more manageable. This is entirely possible, though it should be noticed that still there are others who say that it's a seah, which is approximately one-third of an ephah and would weigh 60 to 100 pounds of grain. So which measure it is, we're not sure. Um, it is even entirely possible that none of these are meant to be considered and only the fact that it was six scoops, whether by hand or by harvesting tool. Regardless, it is enough that Boaz is the one who has to put it on her, as we notice, so it must be more than she's able to easily pick up on her own. We also have an interesting moment. We're not sure whether the last statement, then she went into the city, is actually masculine or feminine. I know this is really technical, and I'm sorry, but I thought I should mention it. Uh, most late editions that we've found of Ruth have it in a feminine, and this seems to be how the ESV takes it, since it says she went into the city. Um, but earlier manuscripts have it in the masculine. If it's in the masculine, then it means that Boaz is the one that went into the city after this occurred. Um, this is just as likely, since he would need to go and get ready for the next chapter at the gate. Regardless, if it was originally masculine or feminine, is really not that big of a deal since both went into the city in the end. So I just wanted to bring that up. I don't know why I did. Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her. We now learn what occurs with Ruth. She returns home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Right away, Naomi does not ask, who is there? One would imagine this to be the question um, to such an early visitor. In the Hebrew, it is more though, who are you, my daughter? She obviously knows who it is, otherwise she would not have said, my daughter, and has likely been expecting her return. So as the ESV translate it, translates it, Naomi is asking how things went, if everything went according to the plan. So Ruth explained all that occurred. We notice that it does not say Boaz, um, all that Boaz had done. The likely reason for speaking of him as the man is a way for them to refrain from being too presumptuous in familiarity. Likewise, we see her saying all that he had done. The focus on what he is doing, not necessarily what was said between the two. Um, also, it's a focus on what he had done, as she says. So verse 17, what, what did he do? That's the question. Verse 17, saying... These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. This, of course, leads us to the final thing he did, which was give her the measures of barley. So far, we have wondered what the reason for this gift is. Um, and if we haven't collectively, I'm sure you might have when he was doing it. And if you weren't, it's okay. It almost appears that he had given it to her out of kindness, or perhaps to make it appear that she had been um, out getting grain rather than spending night in the threshing floor. That's what it seems. That's the reason. The question is, why did he really do it? Is there more of a reason than this? Will we now find the reason? Ruth had either asked what it was for or had been told while he had been giving it to her. Um, here we are told he gave it to her because he did not want Ruth to go back to Naomi empty-handed. This is a clever play on words with what Naomi said in chapter 1, verse 21, when she argued that God had brought her back to Bethlehem empty. The question we want to ask is, why does Boaz focus on Naomi at this point of the story? 
There are three possible reasons. The first is Boaz recognizes his relationship to Naomi as Goel, or in our language, kinsman redeemer. As we consider, Ruth herself is a Moabite and on her own would have no relation to any kinsman redeemer in Israel. This is not the case of Naomi. Likewise, we are told in chapter 2 that Boaz is the near relative of Elimelech, who was the husband of Naomi. If the focus of kinsmen was on Ruth, why wouldn't Malin, her husband, be mentioned? Because of this, it is possible that he does this because he is Naomi's redeemer. The second has to do with the whole scheme that had occurred at the threshing floor. It is likely that Boaz and Ruth talked a bit more about all that was occurring, and in talking, Ruth made it known that it was Naomi's plan and her encouragement, which, go, which caused her to go to the threshing floor and likely change from mourning widow to eligible widow in the first place. So it is possible that Boaz, recognizing the mastermind behind the plan, simply wanted to thank Naomi for her actions, and he did this by sending the gift. Now, the third option is that Boaz sent the gift as a sign of good faith. In other words, he has made a promise to make sure Ruth would be redeemed and married either by himself or the nearer kinsman. It also may reflect the bride's price given to a legal guardian of a bride, when, um, which, was not, which was given at the time of betrothal. This does not mean it was a way of purchasing a bride, as women were not bought and sold as one would buy or sell grain or different commodities. So this is a logical reason for him to send the grain as a way to show his intentions are sure and honest by giving a type of bride price to Naomi to Ruth. Ultimately, all of these are possible in the text, and in some ways they may even interconnect with each other in what's really happening, though it seems the last may be the closest, especially when we consider the final verse of the chapter, which is 18. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi's reply to Ruth is the reason the final interpretation of the previous verse is most compelling. First, we learn that she should wait. This is the opposite of what she was commanded to do at the beginning of the chapter. There she was called to do many things. Wash, anoint, dress, go to the threshing floor, do what um, she was told with Boaz while there, etc. Now that Ruth had done all of this, she can sit down, relax, and wait since her part in this is finished. She is told to wait to learn how the matter turns out. This does not mean that it is all up to chance. Instead, it implies that there is a purpose, a will, which will guide the events to take place as they are supposed to. As has been previously seen, there is no chance in the book of Ruth. Everything seems to be happening for a reason. Naomi is recognizing this and trusts that what will happen will happen as it is supposed to happen. Finally, Naomi informs Ruth that the man again, notice not Boaz, will do what he said he will. In other words, Naomi is fully trusting Boaz to do what he has said and fulfill his obligations. This reflects the previous verse again, as she likely understood the gift to be an act of good faith and is, and is hence putting her faith in him to do as he has proclaimed. There is no reason to doubt him. He will get it done, and the issue will finally be resolved this very day. While Ruth is able to sit and wait, she knows that Boaz will not be sitting until the matter has settled. Now, the main point of these verses, these final verses in the 
uh, chapter 3, is for us to see the conclusion of the third act of the story. Ruth has gone to Boaz at the threshing floor. All has occurred as it could be desired, but we are still left wondering whether Ruth will end up with Boaz or not. Along with this comes the end for Ruth in the story. She will no longer be, as we will see within the next few weeks, a primary character in the story. Her role has been accomplished, and now we wait along with Ruth to see what happens next. Um, yeah, so she's only mentioned briefly in chapter 4, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Just so you're aware. All right, application points. Patience and rest. In today's text, we see something which has not been hit on yet, and that is patience and rest. I suppose the reason for this is that there hasn't been much time when the focus should be on these things. Generally, the characters have all been go, go, go without much respite. Now, however, we get to consider the patience of Ruth during this time of great excitement for the story. First, we want to consider the rest of the story. Um, We notice that Ruth in particular has been working very hard and being obedient in all that she has been told to do. She has worked hard throughout the story, making sure that provision is met for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now we notice that she has done all that she is able to do at the threshing floor. She has done her part. Now it is time for her to wait. This is something that we often see with ourselves. How often does it occur that we labor in some capacity and then we are called to simply be patient? Consider when it comes with evangelism. We are called to labor for the Lord through the preaching of the gospel. We are called to make disciples, to teach them, and to baptize them. In these things, we labor. But at the same time, there comes times in these things which require patience. When we plant seeds, sometimes it's necessary for us to simply take a step back and trust that the Lord will work in the person's life. It is similar to the parable of the sower or soils. The sower must wait to see what is going to happen with the seed um, and to see which seed will provide a harvest. The sower has done all that he can do and must leave it now up to the course of nature or in this case providence to step in and to make a harvest. The same idea is brought by Paul, who recognizes that though he may plant and others may water, it is God who causes the growth. After we have labored, there is a very real sense in which we are simply to be faithful, obedient, and patient with what God will do in a person's life. I think that this is also a reminder to us, too, to simply trust that God will bring forth his will. There are many people who burn themselves out thinking that if they are patient, if they do sit and do wait, if they're not moving or working, then they will not be glorifying God. What a contrast that, D.A. Carson once said, sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. I think that there's some truth to that, and I think everyone is thinking amen, except for David. (laughs) Because according to him, sleep is overrated. I know. The rest of us can say amen. This does not only apply to ministry, but all of life. How many times have you been stressed out about something, like a job interview, or the answers of a test result? Meanwhile, there is literally nothing more you can do. You showed up for the test and took it. That was your job. That was your responsibility, your job. Now it is the job of the person who grades the test, or in the case of health, the one who looks at the results of a blood test or some other health test to find out the results. 
Why stress and worry about it? Instead, sit down, relax, and trust that all things will come about as they should. In order for this to happen, one needs patience. Patience by way of waiting for the results and trusting in God that the results will turn out as they should and no other way. Having patience by way of sitting and letting the pieces fall as they should. Having patience in God's will, in his plan. It is not easy for us to have patience. It is not easy for us to be able to sit and wait for results. Often, we are people who want to be involved in every aspect of the situation at hand. We want to be the ones who cause these things to come about. To not only be the test taker, but also be the ones who perform the analysis of the test. The truth is... We are blessed to be able to be faithfully follow, uh, faithfully follow after God, knowing that our patience in Him is assured, and knowing that it is in Him we are able to have our true rest and peace, knowing that whatever the results may be, they will fall according to His will. It is in Him that we find the ability, then, to have patience with things which occur in this world. Because we know our God, We can have patience and rest despite our tendency to want to be in control. It is because we know who our God is which allows us to sit down, to wait, and be patient with whatever may come our way in the future. So be patient and be willing to rest and wait for the Lord to work in our labors as we work. So of course that leads us to the second point, only after work. Now now that that last point is important, I know it is, it's very important. I do think we all need to be reminded that it is good to rest when our work is done. But along with that, we have another moment when we need to recognize that rest only comes after work has been accomplished. The example of this is the last thing that Naomi says about Boaz. He will not rest until the matter is settled. Now, this may seem counterproductive to the previous notion, which was about patience and rest. But the truth is, we need to remember that rest comes after we have worked. It is not a matter of seeking rest first, but only after we have accomplished what it is we have to do. The examples from the previous point work here as it did there. Consider it. When it comes to ministry, for example, it is necessary for us to sow the seed or to water. While it is true that God causes the growth, he is the one who causes the roots to go down deep. It is still our responsibility to proclaim the gospel initially and to make disciples by teaching and baptizing. These are things we are called to do, things that we should see as work, but a blessing because we are able to partake of the glorious work for the glory of the Lord and his holy name. Along with this comes to things like tests. In order for the test results to be found, one must first take the test. You need to go to the doctor to take the test in order to see what the results will be. You are the one who needs to take the examination to see what score you are going to get for your studies. You still have to work. You still have to put the effort in. There are two extremes that we can see when it comes to this life. The first is that we are the, only, that we are the ones who do everything and God sits in heaven and does nothing. This is called deism and despite many who claim Christ as Lord, there are many who hold this view of God, that he just sits in heaven and does nothing. The second is on the other side, which is where God literally does everything, and because of that, we do not have anything to contribute. But both of these things are the extremes which take away from the reality of who we are and what occurs in the world. The truth is, we are called to do. 
We are called to enact our wills in the world, in the world who work, who move. We also recognize, however, that it is God who causes us to work, causes us to move, who causes us to have our being. All things that have a beginning have a cause. Our own cause is God himself. So it is with this in mind we, can, we recognize that being called to move and to act in the world does not take away from the providence of God. It does not take away from the story of Ruth when we see that Boaz is going to continue until the matter is resolved. Instead, it reminds us that God has created us in his image to move in the world he created, and we recognize that we can never thwart the will of God, though we can coincide with it. All of this is to remind us that work is a good thing. There are things which require us to work extra hard for where rest might be delayed, and other things when rest comes sooner rather than later. Boaz is a good example of this. When it came to the threshing floor, we noticed he worked and then he rested almost immediately after. When it comes to Ruth, he will not rest until the matter is settled. In both cases, work is required. In both cases, rest comes, but at different times. So ask God for the wisdom to discern when it is time to rest and when it is time to persevere on, when it is time for patience and when it is time for work, knowing that he will guide us rightly for his glory. Now this leads us to our third application, gift. Within this week's text, we also saw Boaz providing a gift of six measures of barley. It is true that we have already seen much of what this could be, and we have already looked at various interpretations of what it means. Um, And something we might consider, though, is the gift in light of the rest of the book, in particular when we consider the women in the journey. As we have seen repeatedly in the book, there is a dichotomy between empty and full, between barren and harvest. This all began with the first chapter when we learned about the famine and the women's barrenness, and Naomi leaving Bethlehem full but returning empty. In all these things, we see this common theme, and it is something we have looked at repeatedly throughout the text of Ruth. In other words, it is probably important that we remember it going forward every time we read the book. Regardless, there is something to be said concerning the gift Boaz gives to the women. It is reminiscent of the gift he has already given, but it also causes us to reflect on the broader theme of empty versus full. It is possible that this further shows us the future of the book, not only when it comes to their empty stomachs, but also empty from not having any heirs. One would think that this final gift from Boaz is meant to foreshadow where the book is heading as a whole. But, we will not ruin the end of the book. Instead, we will remember that this reminds us of the gift of God given to the women. It reminds us of the providence of God throughout the book. It reminds us that God has continued to give to these women and has led them from the land of Moab to the land of Bethlehem for a particular reason. God has been gracious to Ruth thus far. That causes us to think about grace. From the beginning, we learn that the family of Elimelech seems to be in the wrong. They're running away, and there is no evidence that their faith is very strong in Yahweh since they end up marrying Moabite women. Despite this, God has given grace. That is the nature of grace, to be given to those who are undeserving. In this way, we are given the gift of grace through Christ. 
Though we are not deserving of Christ, of salvation, God gives this gift through grace. This does not mean that we have, what we have done in the past is justifiable. It does not mean that our sins are good. Instead, it reminds us that God, seeing us as we are in our fallenness, does not justify our past, present, or future sins, but gives grace to us instead. I think that these are the two things which the gift reminds us of. The first is that the story is not yet ended, and the second is that grace has been seen throughout the book, and it is seen in our own lives as well. Be encouraged to consider this as you continue to walk in the faith, knowing and grasping the salvation which is given to us is given as a gift by the grace of God. Marvelous is this gift. Amazing is this grace. We now come to the final point, the gospel. Clearly, we can see the gospel in all of these points. It is the gospel which causes us to labor. It is the gospel which provides us rest and the reason for patience. And it is the gospel which is the greatest gift we have been given by the grace of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news for the nations, that God is there, he is not silent, and he is spoken. The gospel begins with our origins. God existed without a beginning because he is infinite. The universe, however, is not infinite, but has a beginning. All things that have a beginning have a cause. God is the cause of the universe. He created all things according to the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to be made in his image. Because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, and shows hesed, we can as well. Likewise, it is here we find the sanctity and dignity to human life. Yet like God, we are able to choose. We could choose to obey God into life or disobey God into sin and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. It is because of this we have broken relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world. It is also the reason that we accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. And because of this, we deserve judgment for our sins. God did not remain silent. Instead, he spoke his word and spread his light, which is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of his life, death, and resurrection that we are able to be redeemed from our sins. He died as a propitiation on our behalf. His blood expiates our sins. Where once we were guilty before the judge, we can now attain righteousness before God. The victory of Christ over death becomes our victory as well. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance from sin. We are to turn away from our sins and turn to God. We are to live a lifestyle to to the glory of God. We are to live according to the scriptures, in light of the Son revealed by the scriptures, and then step with the Spirit of the Son in us. The second is faith in Christ. We must recognize our utter dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do. It is what Christ has done which saves us from our sins. It is his righteousness given to us. It is by him we are justified before God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who live in disobedience, there is only judgment. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand, for their own deeds are stained with sin, and even their best deeds are as filthy rags before God. Therefore, 
they will receive judgment for their sins because of their disobedience to the holy and righteous God of all. For those who do obey, however, there is no longer condemnation but peace. They are called children of God. They can glorify God in their lives by how they live. They become inheritors of an eternal kingdom where they will experience the love of God forevermore. In all these things, we give praise to God of all. The God who reminds us of the gift of salvation given to us by his infinite grace. Be encouraged to seek wisdom. Be encouraged to have patience in the Lord, to wait upon him, to rest in him, and to continue to work for the glory of God. Seek the glory of God in all things in life, knowing that he is worthy of all of our lives and all of our praise. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the book of Ruth who continues to encourage us to recognize this difference between being empty and being full. And Lord, we recognize that it is you who fills us up. That if we are to be filled with anything, it should be your glory. Because your glory lasts forever. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to be with us, continue to guide our steps, and that your spirit would continue to reveal you to us every day. Again, we thank you, and in your son's name we pray. Amen. At this time, um, if we could please stand to sing our final hymn, Amazing Grace, number 422. And we're going to sing all of them except for stanza three. So one, two, four, five. <laughs>